Let's have a word of prayer before we get into our study. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, though, if you want to open to that. Father, we thank you for bringing us here tonight to this place. And I'm just thinking tonight, Lord, how here in the middle of our week, uh, all of us have things going on, Lord, uh, in different ways, some good, some not so good. But we all need to be refreshed and encouraged and blessed by spending time with you. Uh, Lord, we appreciate so much that your heart is towards us, your love is for us. Your face is shining down upon us, Lord. Scripture says you're the lifter of our heads. If we're down tonight, if there's something going on in our lives that is less than enjoyable, Lord, you're the one that reaches down from heaven and lifts up our head, looks into our eyes, and encourages us and ensures us, Lord, that we have an inheritance waiting for us that's everlasting and incorruptible. Uh, With the encouragement to persevere, and to stay the course. And so, Lord, we ask that you would guide us through this word and that afterwards, Lord, as we pray together and pray one for another, Lord, that it would be a time when your Holy Spirit would have his way in our heart and in our midst. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if Paul the Apostle was a morning person or not, but in our text, he argued that all Christians are morning people with regards to Bible prophecy. You, he's going to say, addressing Christians, are all sons of light and sons of the day. They, he'll say, addressing non-believers, are of the night and darkness. A day is coming called the day of the Lord. It is coming like a thief with sudden destruction. It is a day of wrath. It will not overtake Christians who are living in the light because they have obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It will come upon non-Christians living in the night and they shall not escape. That's a paraphrase of the verses that we're going to look at tonight. Now, the Bible has several names for this day of the Lord. You know part of it by its most popular name, the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is that future seven-year period of time during which God pours out His wrath upon the earth in one last effort to save men and women from eternal judgment, to prepare the earth for the return of Jesus Christ, and to turn the hearts of his people Israel to their Messiah. The Thessalonians were confused. They knew at least two things about the Lord's coming. Uh, Number one, they knew that the Lord was coming for them in the rapture. And number two, they knew that the Lord was coming with them after the rapture in his return to establish his kingdom on the earth. But there was also the day of the Lord preceding the Lord's coming. Would they go through it? Were they already in it? The answer to both of those questions, as we'll see tonight, is an emphatic no. And so, Paul is filling in the blanks, some teaching that he wasn't able to get to in the three weeks or so that he was with the Thessalonians, uh, especially in the area of Bible prophecy. And so, in verse 1, we read, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Now, everything's going to make more sense to you about this passage when you realize that this phrase, times and the seasons, is an important prophetic phrase. We would call it a technical phrase because it only occurs two other times in the Bible, so it has a very specific meaning. It first occurs in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel, you remember, captive in King Nebuchadnezzar's court in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that completely freaked him out. He saw a great image with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs were of bronze, the legs were of iron, 
and the feet partly of iron and partly of clay. In his dream, a stone from heaven struck the image on its feet and broke them into pieces. The stone then became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel interpreted the image in the dream to represent the succession of certain human kingdoms on the earth until the return of Jesus Christ to crush them and establish the kingdom of God on the earth. As he interpreted the dream, Daniel said, God changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he raises up kings. And then the next use of this phrase is in the New Testament book of Acts. Jesus was about to ascend into heaven from the Mount of Olives. His disciples were a little confused about the timing of end times events. They asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What kingdom were they talking about? They were talking about the kingdom prophesied by Daniel. Jesus answered them and said, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And so this phrase, times and seasons, is a technical phrase that looks forward to the return of Jesus to crush the kingdoms of men and to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit encouraged that the disciples, even after being with Jesus for three and a half years, still didn't understand the order of prophecy. Don't you sometimes scratch your head about prophecy and you think, do I really know what's going to happen and in order? Uh, and and that's, that's always a, a, a question that you get when people are talking prophecy. So what, what, how, how does that work? When is the, exactly the great tribulation and what are the events of it? And so the disciples, they were confused as well. Now, we don't need to be confused or we don't need to remain confused, but it's encouraging it, it, you know, that uh, not everybody has a total handle on this. But this phrase, the times and the seasons, it's definitely looking forward to this return of the Lord when he will crush the kingdoms of men and establish the kingdom of God on the earth. Now, the Old Testament prophets and the Lord Jesus both said that his return to crush the kingdom of men and establish the kingdom of God on the earth would be preceded by a time of unprecedented tribulation on the earth. We call it the tribulation or the great tribulation. In the Old Testament, it was called the day of the Lord. Two of the characteristics of the day of the Lord are given in verses 2 and 3. Its beginning is sudden and unexpected, and its end is certain and unavoidable. And so verse 2 says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. And so the day of the Lord, this time of unprecedented trouble, begins suddenly and is unexpected. It is like the coming of a thief in the night. Now, contrary to some movies or some approaches to prophecy, Jesus is not the thief in the night. It's just a really bad metaphor to apply to Jesus. Are you ever excited about a thief that comes in the middle of the night? You think, oh, wow, honey, wake up. The thief is here. We're so excited. We're so happy that the thief has come. Does it bring joy to your heart? And so it's, it's not a good metaphor. It's not a good illustration of Jesus. Jesus is not the thief in the night. The day of the Lord begins unexpectedly when people are saying peace and safety. The most detailed teaching on the day of the Lord is in Revelation uh, it's chapters 6 through 19. Chapters 6 through 19 of the Revelation are the description of the day of the Lord, the tribulation period. And what will happen, we studied that some time ago. 
uh, what will happen is uh, it will give a description of, of one of the judgments, the trumpets or the, the seals or the trumpets or the bulls, and then it will go back and fill in some details. But it's very chronological, takes you all the way through the seven years of the Great Tribulation. The day of the Lord begins when a world leader signs and enforces a peace treaty in the Middle East. Now, we know this man is the Antichrist. The world will herald him as a political and military genius who has finally resolved the age-long conflict in the Middle East, bringing peace and safety so that the Jews can dwell in peace and safety and have the freedom to rebuild their temple. What the people on the earth will actually experience is sudden destruction as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Because once that tribulation period begins, it follows a very definite course. Like a woman in labor, it cannot be stopped, and the pain will come in ever-increasing cycles. It will be awful. It will be terrible. Jesus said it would be trouble like the world had never known before nor ever would again. And he indicated that if he didn't return at the end of it, it would have meant the destruction of the human race. It's, it's going to be that terrible. Four-fifths of the world's population is going to be killed during the Great Tribulation. And, and if that doesn't uh, activate your understanding of just how awful it's going to be, um, it's, it's a mind-blowing time. Uh, and once it starts, it's not going to be able to stop. Now, we need to read the end of verses, uh, verse 3 with verse 4. It says, And they shall not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. They shall not escape, but you, brethren. The you are believers, obviously. He calls them brethren. He calls them Christians. They are non-believers. They're non-Christians. This is a clear and unmistakable contrast. Non-believers shall not escape this day. It will overtake them, but you will escape it, and it won't overtake you. Now, I, I read that. I think that's pretty clear. We're talking about the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath, the great tribulation, and Paul says, non-believers cannot escape it. You will escape it. It will not overtake you. Verse 4, you brethren are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. If you're a Christian, you're a son of light and of the day. If you're not a Christian, you're of the night and darkness. Now, the Bible describes the world as a kingdom of darkness. Jesus came as a light shining in the darkness, John 1, verse 5. Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, John 8, 12. When a person makes a decision to trust Jesus Christ to be their Savior from sin, they are, we read in Colossians, rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's Son. Those who were formerly darkness, Ephesians, or excuse me, for, yeah, Ephesians chapter 5, are now light in the Lord. God has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, 1 Peter 2, 9. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is described as a day of darkness in Joel and by Zephaniah. It's a time of judgment specifically for the people in the kingdom of darkness who have rejected the light of the world. And so we would say it is for night people, not light people, 
Believers, therefore, need never fear that the day of the Lord will overtake them. I mean, I, I, mean, I think it's plain. I think it's clear. I think all the writers of Scripture go out of their way to say it's not for you. It's not about you. There's, you have no place in it. And by the you, we're talking about the unique group of people that we know as the church. One of the problems, I mean, there are other, uh, obviously, interpretations of prophecy and, and uh, you know, in terms of where people think the rapture is going to take place. Uh, there's a mid-tribulation rapture, post-tribulation rapture, the pre-wrath rapture of the church, which teaches that since the first part of the tribulation isn't going to be all that gnarly, the church will be in that part of it, but it will be removed before the wrath of God begins to be poured out. And so there's all these uh, different ideas. But most of them, not all of them, but most of them fail to... Uh, correctly distinguish between the church and other groups of individuals that God deals with. And so, consistently the Lord tells the church, you, not just believers in general from the Old Testament era and the tribulation, He says, you, the church, this unique group of people that started on the day of Pentecost and continues until the resurrection and rapture of the church at the Lord's coming, you are not going to be overtaken by this darkness. You are not going to be subject to any part of the wrath of God. Uh, you need not fear. It's not about you. It's not for you. Second Thessalonians, he'll very plainly say, you are going to be removed before it begins. The word wrath is key. Drop down to verse 9 and 10 for just a moment. For God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. The word wrath describes God's judgment upon sinners. The day of the Lord is the day of God's wrath. As clearly as he could, Paul said, God did not appoint us to wrath. Believers have no part in this day of the Lord. He says, you obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. That means he took your place. He took your place when he died on the cross. The wrath of God against your sin was already poured out upon Jesus as he hung on the cross at Calvary. You cannot ever experience God's wrath if you are saved. It doesn't mean you can't experience trouble or tribulation or persecution or suffering or things like that. Obviously, you can. That was a promise that you would. But if you're talking about wrath in the technical sense of the wrath of God being poured out upon Christ-rejecting men during the Great Tribulation, Paul says, yeah, that's not for you. You're, you're not going to be subject to that. You won't go through that. Paul added in verse 10 that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Jesus. That's looking back to his teaching on the rapture in verse, uh, or chapter 4, which we saw last time we were together, uh, that, you know, believers who have died uh, will not uh, be left behind, but when the Lord comes to rapture the church, they will be raised from the dead, and then he'll rapture them. And so whether you're awake at the time of his coming or sleep, you're going to be together with the Lord, and you're not going to experience the wrath of God. Uh, you know, it, to me, it would be wishful thinking. I, I mean, I would try to figure out ways to not experience the wrath of God, but uh, it's, it, it, we're not doing that. I mean, this is the clear teaching of Scripture. We are not going to be in the Great Tribulation. And I, I, don't, believe, I don't believe that any Christian really believes that we're going to be here for a part of or all the Tribulation, or else they really would be making uh, preparations. 
they'd be more like the prepper groups that are getting ready for disasters. Uh, it's not consistent. It's inconsistent to say, oh, yeah, we're going to be here for the great tribulation. Water's going to turn to blood. People are going to be dying left and right, <laughs> you know, and stuff. What are you doing about it? Nothing. I'm, you know, still, I'm just putting into my retirement, looking forward to my retirement house, um, you know, just when it happens, it happens. What are you going to do? Well, you better do something because it's going to be pretty awful. You better find out what you're supposed to do during that time. That's another thing about the tribulation that would bother me if I thought I was going to go through it. I don't know what to do in it. I know what to do now, don't I, as a Christian in the church age because I read the epistles and it says do this, you know, fight the devil, uh, be a good husband, do this at work and all that. There's really no instruction for what's gonna, what the church ought to be doing during the great tribulation. It would seem like you'd have a pretty important role to play, wouldn't it? But there's no instruction because you're not there. Instead, the church is removed, as we'll see in 2 Thessalonians, and God says, all right, I've got now, I'm going to replace the church with 144,000, with Moses and Elijah, with angels. These are going to be the sources of the gospel, of the good news, of spreading the good news on the earth because the church is in heaven. You, you've lo- you don't have a great commission anymore in the, in the tribulation. You realize that? The church is given the great commission And then the people who are commissioned in the tribulation are not that same group. It's a Jewish group. It's dead prophet society, you know. It's it's Moses and Elijah that come back to life and, uh, you know, come back to earth rather. And it's angels. And so the church, I just, nobody really believes that they're going through the great tribulation. Or if they do, they've got their bunker. And you don't want to be around them, believe me. And it, over the years, there have been a few people, I hope you're not here tonight, but uh, every now and then, somebody, whether it was in San Bernardino or here in Hanford, somebody will come up with a kind of wild look in their eyes and tell me that they're making preparations for the tribulation. And I always kind of think that they're looking for a pastor to hide in their bunker, you know. You know I, I just, it's a little scary when somebody tells me they're actually preparing for the great tribulation. Um, Don't go to the second location with them is all I have to say. (laughs) The night people, the, uh, well, anyway, those who sleep are believers who have died prior to the rapture. They're living together with Jesus right now in heaven. We who remain alive will be caught up prior to the day of the Lord, be living together with them and Jesus while the tribulation is occurring on the earth. The night people, the non-believers have an appointment with God's wrath. It's unavoidable, or excuse me, it's avoidable now, but it's inevitable if they go on rejecting the Lord's gracious offer of salvation. Prophecy ought to be practical. Having contrasted light people and night people, Paul made some practical applications in verses 6 and 7 especially. We're in the kingdom of light, but we're living on the earth among those groping in the realm of darkness. And so two things should characterize our lives as believers in contrast to non-believers. Verse 6, And seven, therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. And so we should be sleepless and we should be sober. Sleepless means, well, in chapter 4, we saw the word sleep describe the physical death of believers. The word here is a different word. It's a word that has to do with moral indifference. 
Here's the problem. The night that surrounds us as believers has a tendency to lull us into moral indifference. If you're not careful, you begin to yawn and then you doze off. Are you a, are you a person that just suddenly falls asleep? Does that ever happen to you? I, I just, you know, I'm on the chair and my poor wife, she goes, are you sleeping? Uh, no. Of course I'm sleeping. I think I'm awake. I actually think I'm doing fine, and then it's midnight, and I'm on the chair, you know, and, and I think, man, I hope I don't do this when I'm driving. But anyway, uh, you know, and, and that's the picture that Paul's painting is that if you're not careful and on guard and, and, and cautious, there's a moral indifference that creeps in because of the influence of the world around us. We're going to talk a little bit about it on Sunday in the sense of Jesus saying you don't want to lose your saltiness. You're a salty person. Uh, you're the salt of the earth. You don't want to lose that saltiness by compromise or by contamination. Uh, you can't afford to yawn in the face of sin is another way of putting it. And you certainly can't afford to fall asleep. And then he uses the word sober. You can't afford to be drunk. Drunk refers to the influence of some stimulant or intoxicant. Certainly alcohol and drugs are included, but there are many other kinds of intoxicants in our world, power and pleasure and pride and possessions, promotion, to name a few that people go for. You cannot afford to be under the influence of the world's intoxicants. You must remain sober. You should see yourself as sleepless and sober until the coming of the Lord. And so Paul gives an illustration. He says, you're like a soldier on sentry, verse 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The soldier on sentry duty cannot sleep, and he must be sober. You are that spiritual soldier, always on duty as long as you live in this kingdom of darkness. Some of your armor is described. You, uh, he says to put on. That's a verb tense that means to put on and leave on. No furlough, not even any rest for you as a soldier on sentry. Your breastplate here is faith and love. It's a description of both sides of the breastplate. On the inside, faith. On the outside, love. Faith is the proper heart attitude towards Jesus Christ. Love is the proper heart activity toward His saints and all men in general. Your helmet here is called the hope of salvation. Your hope on earth is that Jesus is coming any moment to take you home, either through your death or in the rapture. In either case, you'll be with Him and not subject to the day of wrath. Uh, and this hope of salvation, uh, you understand that salvation uh, begins when you're saved, continues through your sanctification on the earth, and is final when you are glorified. And so you have the hope of final salvation, of glorification, as the Lord is coming for you and uh, not subjecting you to the day of wrath. You're protected from the things of the world will seek to, seek to overcome you, knowing that the world is passing away. And then finally in verse 11, which we skipped, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Comfort means coming alongside to strengthen. Edify means to build up. Uh, and so in all this talk about prophecy, Paul, very practical, he says we want to remind ourselves that the Lord is coming in a way that comforts and builds up the church. Uh, individuals who are living in this present kingdom of darkness, this present darkness, who are the lights of the world, the salt of the earth. Uh, we need to be encouraging and comforting one another. Uh, some of us, some of you I should say, 
really good comforters. I mean, you know, you just you have the, the ability to just come alongside somebody and, and kind of read them and, and just be helpful and thoughtful and encouraging. Um, really good at building people up, you know, edifying and, and all. Some of us not so good. And uh, I think, you know, obviously some are gifted at it more than others. Uh, uh, some of us need to work at it a little bit more, uh, you know, and, and uh, realize that people are going through it on the earth. I mean, it's, you know, uh, and it's not one of these things where, you know, don't become this person that says, how are you? How are you really? You can tell. You can tell me. How are you doing? You know, and then look at your watch the whole time, you know. So I find that years ago I had to take my watch off when I was counseling because I have a bad habit of, I like to look at my watch. I don't know what it is. It's just, it's a weird kind of uh, obsession that I have. And so I finally had somebody bold enough to say, am I boring you? <laughs> and I said, why? And they go, because you keep looking at your watch. I didn't even realize I was, so now I take my watch off during counseling. But if you notice, I have clocks strategically placed all over my office. Anywhere I'm looking, I can see what time it is. I have a clock to the left of me, behind where you sit, and on the wall. And every now and then, I'll still sneak down and look at my watch. But I know it's just, it's an obsession. But I need to, you know, if you're not very good at comforting and encouraging and edifying people, then work on it. You know, don't, don't, uh, don't think that you're not gifted because we, uh, you know, People are hurting. I don't know if you realize that or not, but, but people really are hurting uh, in various ways. Not everybody, not all the time, uh, but there's just a lot of pain and suffering in the body of Christ. And uh, when we come together, uh, you, know, you know, it's that old thing that you've probably heard before. People say, oh, Christianity is a crutch, you know, for people to lean on. And the, the response to that is it's not a crutch, it's a hospital. It's a whole hospital where people come in and are healed and helped and built up and sent back out, oftentimes into really difficult situations. And the only comfort that they're going to get, the only building up they're going to get is 30 minutes or 45 minutes when they're on a, a church campus uh, and, and in an encounter with other Christians. And so let's do our level best to encourage one another. Amen. Amen.